One of the inspirational stories that uh, that I would like to share is that um, I think people knew that Central Philippines was devastated heavily by Super Typhoon Yahayan. You know, infrastructure, people's lives, hundreds of thousands of deaths because of the typhoon. But in one of the municipalities in the central region, in Leyte, which was basically ground zero for Super Typhoon Haiyan. It's in a town called Karigara. And what the community did was actually, they organized themselves and they capacitated themselves in terms of empowering about their rights, about exacting accountability from the state in terms of the rebuilding and response, um, you know, post-Super post Typhoon Haiyan. But what they did was they formed a cooperative, a community cooperative, which practices food sovereignty. So it's a women-led cooperative. Actually, the president is a woman. And what they did is that it's sort of like uh, demonstrating by doing, you know, because usually, I, I don't know, in the U.S., in the Philippines, people won't take risks unless they see their neighbors do it first and it becomes successful. Sure, you want to know that it's going to work yeah, out, so right? that's what they did. Um, they sort of like developed this collective farm. It's sort of like part of their community. They transformed it into a collective farm. They planted vegetables, uh, rice as well. Basically, what people eat, you know, on, the, on a daily-to-day basis. So now they're providing food for the community also for their families, food security and, and self-reliance. And at the same time, the extra harvest that they have, they sell to the market. So it's sort of like a model that's been working for the community that's been devastated by Haiyan. But it's also women power. I mean, women collective power, taking upon themselves, not waiting for the state, but also exacting accountability from the state by, by doing advocacy work. Like they engage, for example, the municipal government, central agencies that are supposed to support them and provide relief for them and actually show them that, hey, we're doing this. I think this is something that the government should be supporting or at least a model which should be maybe other communities can learn from. So there's a lot of cross-sharing and you could see the transformation because it's sort of like bringing back dignity to people. Mm. You, you could just imagine mm. a person who lost everything, mm. you know, their houses, their livelihoods, maybe members of their family and with farming back again and and organizing the community together and farming together that has brought dignity back into their lives and and sort of like a confidence mm -hmm. self-worth and self-esteem that basically the typhoon the super typhoon took away from them yeah would they have been as cooperative as they are now had they not had the need to get together to address what was such a an impossible task alone, yeah. you know, it's really hard. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like the tragedy, you know, forced them to think of other solutions because I think in the past, uh, before the tragedy, they were doing all things on their own. And now I think the, the tragedy really, in a way, the, the good outcome of that is this sort of like a cooperative, but also organizing and learning about their rights and as well as connecting to other more resourced um, linked organizations um, and now they're being recognized actually by the, the the local government that it's something that, that the local government should support because it's basically community and people power people uh, basically implementing food sovereignty based on their own need what's what's needed by the community right a great model of resilience yeah. yes exactly <laughs> oh yeah of resilience and also of um, taking back power yeah and very creative Exactly. And for yes. affirming and creative at the yes. same time. Yes, yeah. I yeah, yeah, that's right.
some of the new things that have been coming out um, in terms of the, the work that we're doing with the IFI board is that the context of finance has changed, especially in the last few years in the sense that uh, we have more actors now, um, especially, for example, with the rise of China. China has set up its own international um, development bank called the Asian Inf uh, Investment Infrastructure Bank, which is sort of like a, a competitor to the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. And we're getting more projects from communities that are monitoring and trying to understand how the AIIB would impact their lives and their communities. Is that bank investing directly in projects in the Philippines? Um, for now, not yet, but in Indonesia it is. Um, in Africa it, it is. Um, also, um, to a certain extent in Latin America. In the Philippines, it's not directly funding, but I think it's part of some some sort of like collaboration with, with ADB and World Bank to finance some of these projects. Um, other things that, uh, that are coming up right now is that we're funding um, communities that are sort of using the independent mechanisms that, that are present inside this um, IFIs, like for example, the World Bank and the IFC has their own compliance mechanism and sort of like uh, an ombudsman where communities can bring up complaints against companies and corporations that are destroying their environment or you know a mining company coming into an indigenous people's territories that are basically um, wrecking havoc to their um, territories and, and grabbing their lands. There wasn't that forum before to be able to bring issues to the banks? There are, but um, it's sort of like a mechanism wherein it's a double-edged sword um, in the sense that uh, sometimes it can work for the community, sometimes it cannot. Um, what we find interesting, though, is that in many places where uh, the governments are repressive, and there's little civic space for recourse to justice and redress mechanisms for their for the communities. They use these spaces that are in, uh, available internationally so that they can bring up awareness and make basically the state accountable. So it's sort of like going around um, the system and using what's available. And that's something that I think the community use as a tool for to further their cause. Um, on the other side, because some of this mechanism is basically with still within the IFI um, infrastructure, and usually the the framework of this um, this ombudsman um, you know fact finding mission is to find a win win solution between the 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 corporations and also the communities. But sometimes the communities want these corporations out of of their communities, right? So it's sort of like a double-edged sword in the sense, but at least there's a mechanism available within the IFI infrastructure that the community use. And recently, we we just actually funded an um, an emergency grant. Should I say this because it's sort of like a it's a hush hush? But basically, a a community in the Mekong region is doing an early fact-finding mission to understand the impact of one of the projects by one of the one of the banks, I, w I won't say it because it's sort of like a um, not for public consumption, but it's something that we, we just funded recently in the same way that we also recently funded something similar in the Andes, basically in, in Ecuador, using that fund to look at the impacts and to actually raise awareness among the communities, the coastal communities that will be impacted by a desalination plant funded by the Inter-American Development Bank. 
what kind of an industry is there? Uh, well, there's a lot. Um, in terms of the work connected with the IFI board, um, we've funded communities that have been struggling against extractives, against mining. Many of them, for example, Chinese and also foreign, like Canadian um, and Australian uh, mining companies. We've also funded community and grassroots organizations that are campaigning against coal because coal is uh, becoming big, uh, has become big um, in the country. We have about 19 projects right now where it's being built across the country and they're talking about clean coal which oh, for yes. us it's, uh, it's a bit weird to talk about clean coal because coal is always dirty it has you know a lot of impact on health on the environment on people's lives and communities to a number of cases they're also they also land grab and convert um, agricultural land to be to for for coal power plants to be to be set up so in a time where you know, we're dealing with the impacts of climate change and, you know, the global warming and more extreme weather events. You have a trend where coal plants are being, uh, again, set up in a country which is extremely vulnerable to climate change impacts. And when we talk about um, vulnerabilities, it's always the poor and the marginalized communities that suffer most because of the inequities that are, inequalities that are present in your society. So it's sort of like... um, uh, continuing multiple burdens for uh, for the communities that are already struggling for their land and for their rights to be to be addressed, and now you have these coal power plant plants coming into their to their communities again, and it's sort of like multiple struggles and multiple burden for them. Is it difficult for a community to have consensus? I would imagine on the one hand people want jobs, mm-hmm. but on the other there are people who are concerned about the environment. So it must be difficult to um, to organize. Yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, yes, especially more and more now that you have corporations basically with their corporate social responsibility, and they get you know they sort of like have learned from the movements as well in terms of strategies. So they go to make it look good or exactly. have the right language, and they actually even um, part part of their divide and conquer um, strategy in the community get community leaders to actually actually work for them and be the their spokesperson that this project will be you know good for the community it's good for the development it will it will bring jobs it will bring livelihood etc we've seen that a lot in many of the mining affected communities where communities are sort of like thrown into a situation where consensus is not only difficult but basically conflicts are instigated within mm-hmm. and creating be, yeah creating uh, conflicts and creating unnecessary um unnecessary problem when in fact even for example in the philippines where we have a law that secure that that actually compels corporations and the government to secure free prior and informed consent um, uh, among indigenous peoples whenever there's a development project or a project that comes into the community. These are being used actually as as tools to divide the community, sort of like a token, you know, they would consult with some of the leaders and collude with the, with the agency, the, uh, with the National Commission on Indigenous Peoples to, in a way, show, okay, we have, an F, uh, we have a free, free prior informed consent, but actually that's only among some of the, the elders that they were able to co-opt. So the co-optation strategy of corporations. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I know Newmont did that in Indonesia yeah, exactly. and created yeah. divisiveness mm-hmm. in a community that didn't have it originally and yeah. cut a deal with some of the people but not all and so forth and so on. Yeah, and it's it's a long-term impact. Basically, you create you know long-term schism and division in the community. The spirit of community, uh, community and um, collectivity is basically undermined. Sometimes the conflict are very hard to patch up, especially when, for example, a mining company leaves a community. So there's not much that neighbors become angry at each other, sometimes within families. I mean, we've seen that in some of the communities in the south of the Philippines where relatives are, are basically against each other because one relative has been co-opted or been hired by the corporation and the other leader has been um, sort of uh, still fighting for the, the rights of of the indigenous communities for their right to self-determination and to basically protect their territories. We're also seeing a very alarming trend in the whole of Asia and I suppose in the whole of the world. And the Philippines is, I think, one of the front lines of this is the amount of impunity and the amount of basically killings of human rights defenders, of environmental defenders. I think the Philippines is number one among the countries in Asia that is dangerous for human rights defenders. Yes, in terms of journalists, it's mm-hmm. second only to Syria right yeah, now. exactly. Yeah, so it's it's dangerous. I mean, I think you've heard probably of the story of where 20 plus journalists have been killed a few years back, five, six years ago in the Philippines, and justice is still very, um, uh, hasn't been brought, families are still uh, searching for answers, answers, searching for justice. So when you work with a community, is your role to try and get as much participation in the process as possible Mm -hmm. and get people to know what's going on and to maybe even develop skills so that they can represent themselves well when Mm -hmm. it comes to a mediation situation where they can meet with the bank? Yeah, well, um, my role is sort of like I coordinate and facilitate the a set of committed advisors and sort of like mentors to grantees, and they're the ones that are directly connected to um, to the movements. In terms of me personally, at least in my work with GGF, it's the the advisors that do that. But I've been working with uh, with an NGO for a long time, for fifteen years, and um, we do a lot of capacity building, as, uh, awareness raising, especially in terms of how the IFIs and the development finance world works. Because you could imagine that you know when a plant is set up in a community, the the community would 
think that it's either government or a corporation they wouldn't know the links with IFIs and the role that I did with my previous organization with which is called Focus on the Global South is actually to make that connection to link you know sort of like follow the money who are fun financing this projects so that in a way you only don't exact accountability towards the corporation and the state but also the financiers which is I think very important and sometimes it's quite crucial in terms of stopping projects to you know to stop the financing and to build a movement that basically exact accountability with these big development banks and uh, other um, development financial institutions um, the other thing that we do is sort of like connect movements because a lot of the struggles are actually quite global but the actions are done locally and what we've seen at least across the world is that communities are actually experiencing the same things and there's a common pattern and trend and i think by linking local organizations to national groups as well as regional international in a way you create like a network and community of activists and and the people that are struggling together experiencing together and that in itself is quite very powerful when you're up against a big company or like a big uh, development bank like the world bank which has you know a lot of power political power and economic power and monies um, that, that that go along with it so you need like a big movement a social movement that that can come together mobilize um we've had uh quite a number of big mobilizations around the meetings of the world bank as well as the asian development bank in the past actually right now in october there's going to be a big social gathering of activists from around the world but basically coming also from asia when the world bank is going to have its world bank meeting in bali so a lot of the social movements uh that we work with, uh, as well as the grantees that GGF uh, has supported, will be there to basically expose the you know the development model, the unsustainable development model um, that these banks are supporting, and what it's doing in terms of undermining human rights, in terms of destroying the environment, and still basically putting um, communities and activists at risk with their many policies and projects that states are still adopting and that the states are still moving forward with. Are there specific activists that come to mind? People who have really stepped up because they feel a need to say something to protect their families or their livelihood, the land that they're on, they may have been surprised that they actually are in this role. It wasn't, they didn't come from an ideological point of view. It was more like, well, looks like the job needs to get done. And before you know it, Mm -hmm. they're speaking out. Yeah, well, I can think of a few, uh, a few women, uh, inspirational women that I work with in the Philippines. And I'll name maybe, if we have time, uh, three of them. The first one is she's an organizer um, among um, survivors of prostitution. She, she basically was also prostituted women. Her name is Mylene Sanchez. Through a series of, I think, uh, she was rescued by an organization called Coalition Against Trafficking in Women in Asia Pacific, CATWAP. And basically, she went through a process of healing of herself, um, of understanding her rights, as well as the bigger challenge in terms of women's rights in the Philippines and elsewhere, and also learning from other prostituted women and survivors. She herself has been an organi- is an organizing, is very active, and she's quite involved in psychological first aid training of um, families, particularly 
wives and children who have been victims of the war on drug policy of the government. So um, she's quite an inspiration for me because uh, you know I've seen her basically come, transformed um, and become a leader herself. She's very shy and she won't take the front frontal role um, but I think she's her story is quite inspirational um, and also I think a story which is a story of hope and resistance of somebody you know coming from that situation and now is sort of like a prime mover within the women's movement and that are really making difference in people's lives that's fabulous just yeah. fabulous yeah tell us for those who aren't as familiar what the Philippine war on drugs looks like well, it's one of the bloodiest uh, wars that we've had in recent uh, contemporary history in the Philippines. For everybody's um, information, we have a president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte. He was a mayor for 20 years in the south of the Philippines, and he, he rose to power, much like how Trump came into power as president of the United States with populist policy, with basically tapping on people's rage and proposing an alternative to a system, an elite, an elite democracy, which basically has not worked for the poor and the marginalized people in the community. So the first few days, even before when he came into power, he was already saying he's been uh, a story, a narrative that the, the worst problem in the country is drugs. Hmm. And he basically instituted a policy which is called a war on drugs, which is basically going after drug addicts that he says are low lives and the cause of evil of many, many problems in the Philippines. And it has claimed more than 13,000 uh, lives, extrajudicial killings, uh, because it basically uses violence as the primary solution to the problem, you know, not even rehabilitation, when in fact there's so many studies across the world that shows that violence is not a solution to resolving the, the drug problem. You have, for example, Colombia and Mexico to, as, as example of that. Are people just being disappeared, if you will, not going through the courts or anything formal? Yes. Well, not even disappeared. They're being killed like cold-blooded in the street. So you would have bodies being dumped in the street, you know, with their faces masked on tape. And, you know, some bodies like turn out um, in the rivers. So it's just, I think, blatant violence and cold-blooded violence that you see on a day-to-day -day basis because it's being reported by the media. It has basically generated thousands of families of victims um, of children and, and wives that have been orphaned by this war on drugs. And these families are experiencing multiple vulnerabilities because, um, one, they're being stigmatized in their community because once you're targeted by the police as part of the drug list, because we have a drug list, basically nobody would like to talk to you, even your relatives. So because you're, you're now part of the, the target of structure of state-sponsored violence. And then when a family, for example, um, experienced death, um, they couldn't even claim the bodies because it's very costly, you know, from, from funeral, etc. And then, you know, when the family, the war on drugs have basically targeted urban poor communities, poor people, uh, you know, in Metro Manila and in key cities around the country. And that's double, that's multiple burden, like I say, because the family really, 
go into this series of poverty. You know, they have to move. You know, they couldn't find jobs. And some of the children or the, the women are actually now forced into prostitution because uh, we've, we've gotten reports that families who couldn't, um, you know, make ends meet now have to go into this uh, to prostitution to be able to provide food for the family. And, you know, children lost their, lose their father. That's why a number of the groups that we work with, um, because I'm also a member of um, an, a grassroots network of women called World March of Women Philippines, one of the immediate response that the communities and the, the surviving families need is psychological first aid because you know these are families that were traumatized you know their children couldn't even speak about it and of course their securities are also put the, the security there's a big security risk so you have to sort of like process emotions flow and after that we go on into this couple of series of training about their rights as well as you know um, also training about trafficking etc just to tell them about you know some of the things that are that they should you know take note of during during the training so it's um it's so they're aware so that they don't exactly. become victimized exactly. without knowing what's going on and also to stop the, circ- the the vicious cycle of violence because basically you're we're raising a generation of children that thinks violence is the first thing that you go to whenever you have a problem or you need to to resolve something and that's in any modern society to speak of violence should not be the first solution to any problem it should not be in any case an option and whenever you know we we say violence begets violence and we we really worry about the you know the the generation of children that we're going to raise because they might turn to to violence against to exact revenge or you know when they feel that society is not has, has, hasn't been take care of them and you basically you know I don't know what kind of society we're, we're gonna we're gonna have in the next few years and something worrying um, and this is something that I think we we have to talk more in the country um, you know how to stop this cycle of violence how to stop this war on drugs that's that the government has been really so intent to and lots of public funds and public money are actually going into intelligence and that's putting basically putting other money that should go into public services into health our education our, our health actually has budget has been cut our budget for housing has been cut and has put into intelligence funds for the military and for also for the police to be able to sort of like go into this witch hunting of people uh, you know that are suspected as drug addicts and this is strengthening the military Mm-hmm. And its connection with the government as well, yeah. rather than hiring people like you know social workers versus soldiers kind of thing. Yeah. It must be sad to have children be so intimately involved with death and seeing death yeah. and seeing it as a part of their lives. Yes, it is. Um, and it, this is why I think some of the work of the women's groups that, that I'm part of are very important to support. I think the good thing is that because the, the world is looking at the Philippines and what's happening in it, funds are being raised to support the, the kind of work, the human rights work, and also the intervention that are needed. But I think more more needs to be done. Um, but it's also, I think, while it's a story of, you know, of, of despair and dismay, and I think frustration for many of us, I think what I've seen from the community of survivors, you know, children that were basically that comes into this psychological first aid training that couldn't speak, and you know, when you talk to them, maybe a few months after of doing the of doing the training, you see the changes. It's sort of like collective power and power within the women and the children that you see that there's some hope for resistance and. 
a hope for more transformational resistance against the government because right now you have women coming from the communities that are speaking against this because before we have like silence nobody wants to talk talk about it because they might you know for fear of being targeted next sure so you're seeing a lot of inner inner resources coming yes. to bear on this. Yeah. And, and and women are basically coming out. We've had mobilizations in the past couple of years where survivors are going out at, and with their families and children going out in, into the streets to protest. And that's something quite powerful coming from from people that have been, you know, that have has to do with death, but also of state backlash. Um, of course, they would not you know, they would have like veils in front of them so that, you know, when, when media covers them, they are not, their their faces are not exposed uh, because we're also undergoing security protocols for, you know, to protect uh, their lives and, and their families. But it's it's sort of like a change that we're seeing because the, the state's um, war on drugs has really been, has really impacted a lot a lot of people and there's growing I think the good news is that there's there's a lot of growing um, uh, disillusionment with the with 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 the president even though he's still quite popular but his popularity is going down especially for the uh, poor poor uh, poor uh, lower income households um, so it's something that we were hoping for uh, that will that will basically continue in the next um, the next few months and next few years it, under this uh, administration. The other, um, I think, inspirational thing that I've seen is that last July we've had the State of the Nation address, much much the same as we, when you have a State of the Union address here in the U.S., and about 40,000 people came out in the streets. Wow, that's, that's powerful. Really, and I, I was sort of like one of the six MCs that hosted the program, and it was such... An energy electrif- electrifying moment because you couldn't see the end of the mass of people. Some people are even complaining that they couldn't hear, you know, the right. the, the our voices anymore because they're so far out. So it gives us a lot of hope that resistance is growing, that people are not complacent anymore, that people are not, you know, on the fence about this issue, about what's happening with human rights, what's happening with the war on drugs, what's basically happening with so much sexism and misogyny from this president who jokes about rape on a daily basis and who shames women in public. So more people, more regular people, even people who voted for him are coming out and saying that he's not our president anymore, that they're, you know, regretting for voting for him. So, and a lot of younger people are coming out as well. So it's something that's, is a source of inspiration to continue this type of work. It must be very courageous knowing that they're going against a very strong military. Yes, and also police and sort of like the the state infrastructure. Um, So, and there's a lot of, I think, creative ways that the young people are coming out in terms of campaigning in social media to battle uh, basically fake news and propaganda coming from the government. A lot of discussions about, you know, security protocols, digital security, sort of like so that your, your communications are secured and you're not hacked. Or I think be, if you're under surveillance by the government, you sort of like take extra precautionary uh, measures so not to put people people under risk, you know, body systems. So that kind of conversations are happening. So I still have a lot of hope despite the growing threat. <laughs> I, I recently heard of FemLink, which is a radio station, a small, low-power community radio station. I think it's based in Manila that is all 
people who are interested in reproductive mm, rights. Right, and yes. again, the trying to increase security for transvestites yes, and, and yes. so forth and so on. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's very good. And also, at least we have still have some quite progressive municipalities and cities that are taking on more progressive policies to respect and promote the rights of LGBTI community of women. We have like a big, uh, you know, in the cities where I live, there's a big campaign to make make streets safe for women. So they kind of penalize um, catcalling, um, sexual harassments in the streets. Um, they encourage people to, women to report, uh, you know, different forms of harassments um, that they experience. And that's something that's encouraging, I think, amidst this, you know, um, this repression and amidst the sort of like the fascist tendencies of uh, dictatorial tendencies of the government. Mm -hmm. Well, you said you had another person that comes to mind who's pretty courageous. Yes. Um, actually, she's one of my idols. I work with peasant communities as well um, in my previous work um, on agrarian reform, land rights. And she's, my God, she's been in the movement for 60 years, I think. Wow. 60? Yeah. She's like in her 70s now or I think early I think yeah, late seven yeah, mid seventies, and she started as a very young activist. I mean, she she wasn't actually, you know, she wasn't an ideological person. I think it's more of like the situation calls for it. She's still farming actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, she she sort of like took over the farm when her father died, and she supported her two siblings um, to basically go to school and also still, you know, giving support to the families. She's a rice farmer and um, she's she's really just a fantastic um, woman leader, um, you know, at her age. And, you know, she, she was quite instrumental in terms of bringing, recognizing the role of rural women in policy and also in law because, you know, w one of the major struggles that, uh, that the women's movement, the rural women's movement have in the Philippines is that when you talk about farmers, they always talk about men. And that actually goes in into access to land and resources because usually it's only the men. You know, even if your your two names are there, the husband and the wife, it's always the husband. So now they've really struggled to have women sort of like have access to, to land and own land on their own as women as well as to productive resources. So she was quite instrumental in terms of bringing that into law as part of a bigger um, national rural women's movement uh, that we call. And now at her age, she's still you know, quite uh, strong and still fighting for women's rights. And She sounds feisty. Yeah, her name is Trinidad Domingo. I mean, she doesn't speak much English, uh, but I think she's... Uh, She's really quite, uh, and she she even travels across Asia to speak about her her experiences as well as to share some of the strategies that they have been using in their movement, as well as you know um, some of the current struggles that farmers and rural women are experiencing um, in in the Philippines, and to learn also from other other strategies. She's also quite active in a cooperative right now in in a home based cooperative. Um, she's producing her own sort of like pickle, local pickle. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, fermented food. Fermented, mm -hmm. yeah, from not fish, but fermented uh, pickled papaya salad. Yeah, that she sort of like sells, um, uh, and sort of like is part of the cooperative cooperatives income generation. Uh, also to support the the work, the political work that they're doing. 
Oh, so, so this like is a, a unique cottage industry. Yeah, it is. So it's sort of like a home-based cooperative um, that sort of like becomes a uh, like a center for the different rural women across the country to go in, um, and they they sort of like market it and sell it and find institu- institutional buyers as well. And part of the funds are actually used for the political work of the women's movement in this in these areas because you know right now it's not many organizations or funding groups actually fund political political work or organizing and this is something sort of like a model that they've done they thought of that they need to be self-sufficient they shouldn't really rely so much on foreign funds especially when you know if the government sort of like clamps down and sort of like surveil you know monitor local groups so it's part of the sustainability strategy of the groups and she was also one of the early founders of the cooperative um so she's such a fantastic woman (laughs) we always joke that uh that she should you know have more a hundred more years to (laughs) to to continue the work but you know right uh, like clone herself clone herself and just just have lots of energy that i think young people like me have has to learn from whenever i'm frustrated with my work on you know when you find you know that your work are not really getting so much outcome positive outcome i think of her and think that you know if she's struggling for 60 years i should do it you know i should have the energy and 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 the and the political will to do it as well yeah well i'm glad that she's mentoring people or at least she's speaking out and and sharing her strategies i bet she has a lot of people that she's mentored just quietly on her own a lot of uh, young women as well and also young men in terms of um you know it's part of the strategy of of the farmers movement that you know you have a second line of cadres of you know of activists that will ensure the continuance of the struggle um so and also um provide intergenerational learning because we you know uh, we can learn a lot from from uh, from the older generation of what you know what has worked, what hasn't worked, even if the context is different, uh, especially right now because uh, you know dictatorship is coming back again. So it's something to learn from that generation, which I think young people should appreciate um, in terms of you know thinking of reflecting on what kind of strategies can work in this context, but also. At the same time, making that connection again with with the older, more experienced generation. Yeah, the consequences of where these things can lead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and we learn a lot from. I mean, for example, taking take, taking her story in terms of because she grew up also in the martial law period. You know, during Marcos, and I think you've heard of Ferdinand Marcos. The, oh yes, uh, we all have. And and her wife Imelda Marcos, who's mm. still in power, by the way, and her so many shoes. <laughs> but um, but right now the younger generations are learning from the martial law. Um, generation on what kind of security protocols should we institute you know you know sort of like having you know a list of people lawyers for example media people especially when when an activist or when a community is put under risk so what kind of mechanism should be should be put in place and that kind of social fencing in a way that social fencing is sort of like an idea where if somebody isn't in the community knows that he is under risk or at least under being being watched by the military um, he should he or she should 
uh, should should uh, should inform her or his neighbors and people around her so that you know sort of like it's it's not going to be an isolated case or the struggle would not be in isolation but actually there would be a people physically in that community but also groups that might be in the capital that know of the situation that can you know track and monitor the situation of that person so that you know when when he is or she is disappeared, there's gonna be an immediate rapid response to to find that person and to which agency to go for and to look for that person because we've had so much enforced disappearances in the past. And that's something that we're also seeing with a lot of our activists right now, especially from the indigenous communities that are struggling against mining, against coal. So it's something that, that we're learning from our older um, generation who has experienced um, martial law. Yeah, I would expect that getting the word out and having everybody know that they're connected to other people right. might be a deterrent that, you know, the world is watching kind of thing. Exactly. And that's something I think the Global Green Grants uh, family is uh, taking more seriously and doing more systematic work. In fact, this afternoon we just had a whole session about security and situations of, you know, of grantees, of our advisors, of our coordinators around, around the world, and to sort of like compare notes and to learn from what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of, you know, new ideas have were generated on what can be the next steps, more, more concrete action. People are talking about in terms of mapping, uh, doing like an inventory of countries where incidents, where there have been reported incidents of, you know, enforced disappearances or killings or threats to activists. Um, and then, you know, coming up with regional security protocols, for example. And um, and I think we have a wealth of experience, collective wisdom within Global Green Grants that we are actually finding inspirations. And like, for example, for me, I'm, I'm the coordinator, coordinator of the IFI board, but I've already picking, uh, picked up some interesting ideas to take back to my advisors, to feed back to them, to really think seriously about, you know, how can we how can we think of the security of our grantees and also of the advisors where they work with because the world is more and more becoming more dangerous for this kind of this kind of advocacy and, and, and work that we're doing around the world. And it's not an isolated case anymore. It's sort of like a trend and a pattern. And that's something that the global grants uh, community is, I think, t- taking on squarely. Mm-hmm. Yes, as resistance to some of these regimes grows, mm-hmm. there's no direction to go other than to clamp down harder. Exactly. Um, and like, for example, we've had cases in in Southeast Asia and as well as in Central Asia where states are, you know, are really clamping down on civil society space. We have an Uzbekistan group that we actually just supported last in our, our last round of grant making. And right after the advisor from Ukraine contacted the group, the group received like an, uh, an anonymous email that's basically masking a Global Green Grants email, basically saying asking for information. It's like a phishing email mm-hmm. uh, for information. And it's a bit weird because, you know, it's, it's sort of like, so it's automatic. The group became under surveillance. And now we're taking more precautions and thinking of how we shouldn't put the grantees in so much risk and backlash. Uh, now we know that you know these groups are being watched by the by their governments and also probably by corporations. So they, they have a target on their backs, and it's something that we we have to be really careful about and to think of you know how to address them. Yeah. Well, 
I think we have time for one more inspirational yes. story just because they're so great. <laughs> right. Um, the last um, woman that I'm actually, that I've actually thought is, um, she's a sister, a sister in struggle. Um, her name is Jean Enriquez and she's, a, she's quite a, an awarded a feminist. She herself suffered uh, sexual violence in her previous marriage is now, you know, for a long time. But uh, it, so it took a while for her to, to you know, own her, her, her hurt and really she, she came out in terms of speaking about that. And it's something that, you know, for a private person to experience that, to be speaking publicly about it. But that's, I think, part of the healing that she underwent. And now she's, a, she's a, an executive director of the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. And she's, she's just a fantastic person because um, she has full of energy and she's very thorough and she follows through a lot of commitments. Um, she's part of the women's feminist movement in the Philippines that brought um, reproductive rights, reproductive health into law. Now she's actually, um, we're part of the same network that are bringing new laws into Congress, like an expanded maternity leave for women. Could you imagine that uh, the, F the Philippines is actually the lowest, the country with the lowest number of maternity leave for women in Southeast Asia? It's, it in was, terms of the number of jobs, yeah, that you can paid time that you can take a take a leave, and uh, and you know there are so many studies that basically shows that women who give birth, who who rest longer, can become more productive later on because they, they you know more time for for the baby to heal, but at the same time to breastfeed, it's sort of like more, um, you know, a lot of um, uh, health benefits as well. Right now, we only have about I think six uh, seventy days. I think Myanmar has more. It's about 80. Uh, Singapore has 120. The global standard is, uh, the Philippines is below that. It's about, I think, uh, 98 days. So you can imagine for a country <laughs> that, that's professing that it's advancing gender equity and equality to have that kind of policy for women, it's, it's horrible. So we were able to pass 120-day maternity leave in the Senate. In the House, it's about 100. So it's going to go into bicameral. We have a similar system as the U.S. We actually copied the, the U.S. model of you have two houses, the Senate and the lower house. So now it's going to go into a bicameral committee to sort of like discuss, harmonize the two, the two versions of... Mm -hmm. of come uh, together come with together, a joint yes. agreement. And we hope that they, they at least would come between 100 to 120 days. Um, and of course, the group that are resisting this law are actually the employers. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, they're they're not there, and then they're saying that it's it's very costly for employers, etc. And um, but I think we have a lot of support for, for this to come to, and we have a lot of progressive uh, representatives in Congress and in the Senate to see this uh, law through. We just hope that the president would not veto it. And he would sign it into law because that would be a big forward for women's advancement in terms of their health, well as their workers' rights. In the seconds we have left, is there anything that you'd like us in the U.S. to know about activism in the Philippines? Yeah, well, I think um, one of the things that I wanted to share with the listeners um, is that the Philippines has a very dynamic um, civil society and social movements. I think... Um, one of the learnings uh, from the martial law eras is that uh, we make threats into opportunities. We see opportunities in crisis. And whenever there is clamp down of government in terms of activism and in terms of communities not being able to push for their rights, I think the more that movements resist and come up with these creative solutions as well as ways of proposing alternatives, that's something that I wouldn't say unique 
to the Philippines, but it's something that we're proud of, that people are still resisting, that are taking on to the streets despite the threats in their lives, real threats, real physical threats in their lives. And that's something that I think brings a lot of inspiration to me as, as an activist and something that I think we should continue to support because we believe that, of course, real change comes from uh, social movements and from local organizations and that lasting solutions really come from the ground. And that's something that the model of change and the theory of change, social movements bring real change, whether it's toppling dictators or whether it's change in agroecology. The agents of change really comes from the people themselves. And I'm glad to hear that so many young people are inspired. May I ask how old you are? I'm not that young anymore. I'm 37, (laughs) so I'm way past the young, uh, but I'm always young at heart. (laughs) I could pass for a young person as well. (laughs) But young people are very involved. Yes, they are. Um, More now. Um, I think uh, one of the problems we have with young people in the past is the apathy that you get with with young people. But now, because of the the, the dire situation, I think more young people are coming coming and then saying that, you know, we were also taking things into our hands, organizing, also capacitating ourselves about social issues, making the links, understanding the interlinkages of issues, as well as connecting with other movements because you can only basically advocate for real change when there's more people, you know, more people behind causes and behind um, solutions, no? Uh, It's sort of like not working in silos anymore. And I think the young people really understand that. And I think it's also quite inspirational because young people are quite uh, savvy with technology. So you're using, you know, different technology platforms and even social media to further the cause. And that's something I think the older generation learn from because you have to communicate your story. You have to tell your story. And I think young people are really good at telling stories and then, you know, making making maybe difficult stories into into humanized version. Um, and that's something that I think we're learning from, uh, from each other uh, because, uh, like I said, young people really have a way of telling stories and, uh, and that's something that I think we, we have to take forward more um, into the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing the stories you did with me. Appreciate it, Marianne. Thank you very much, Nikki.